This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with Steve Devereux, the commercial manager for Bristol Flyers. He discusses the concept behind Bristol Sport and what it entails for all the clubs involved, the marketing and growth of UK basketball, and how globalisation has affected player skill set. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So, Steve, first of all, appreciate you jumping on. Um, I guess the first question is, how are you? And the second question is, are we happy the Lakers won or would we hoping Miami would win? Um, I'm quite happy Lakers won. I'm a big, big LeBron fan. Um, so, I always watched him. He's one of the real reasons I got into basketball um, back when he was with the Cleveland Cavaliers the first time. So, uh, you know, he's bounced around to a few teams and I've, I've sort of watched all of those whilst trying to stick with Cleveland Cavaliers, but it's not been easy. They've been pretty poor since he left. So, yeah, I'm happy he won, definitely. Cool. So, um, how are you? How are things? Obviously, we're just about to go into another lockdown, which I'm sure everyone's thrilled about, but yourself, are you all okay? Yeah, it's, it's, it's been really, yeah, it's been tough on it, more, more on, a, on a job level than a personal level, to be honest. Um, just the uncertainties, we've never had anything like this. Um, since I started working in sport, um, just constantly seems to be changing every day. You know what what we think we can do, what we what we can't do. We were just about ready to welcome fans to games before they cancelled the the test events, um, and then obviously now, uh, you, as we speak, we're basically waiting to hear from the government if the BBL and professional basketball can carry on through this through this lockdown period, which we're hope, hopeful it can. Um, so yeah, so it's been pretty up and down, and it's been very tough to to do our sort of normal normal work in the same way. So obviously, for the, I guess more astute listeners um, know about the Lakers, they know we're talking about basketball. Obviously, you work over kind of in Bristol. Do you want to explain to people kind of what your role slash roles are? Um, I guess how you got into it to a certain degree. Yeah. So. Um... I work at Bristol Sport, which for people that know is quite a unique organisation in the way that it's got multiple professional sports um, under one sort of umbrella organisation. Um, so my primary role is commercial manager of Bristol Flyers Basketball, um, but I also work in the Bristol Sport Activation Team. So that covers sort of account management and um, all the sponsorship inventory for all of our partners across, you know, Bristol City, Bristol Bears, both of the women's teams and Bristol Flyers basketball. So um, with Bristol Flyers, my job is more around uh, managing the partners, looking at game days, looking at ways we can sort of grow off the court. Um, so working with the Bristol sport marketing teams and, and social media and communications teams. Um, but then also the, the operations. So working with the team, you know, to make sure that they can try and focus on, on the court. Um, so me and the people at Bristol Sport can look after off the court um, and that's sort of the Bristol Sport concept really. Um, yeah but as, as I said Bristol Sport's a, a really unique one where I'm able to have that Bristol Flyers role but also on the commercial activation side you know get involved with the, the rugby and the football side of the business too. Um, so that's nice, it's nice and varied and it's something that you don't come across much in, in England so so do you want to explain exactly what Bristol Sport is? Because obviously I, I kind of follow sport and I have a kind of gauge of what it looks like, but I probably don't understand the full full force of it, if you like, or the full concept of it. So do you want to explain um, kind of exactly what it is? And then I also guess 
where where the, the idea was developed from yeah so so the concept of bristol sport is you've got each of the clubs so you've got bristol bears bristol city football club and bristol flyers and the concept is is that those teams should just have to focus on uh you know on the pitch or on the court so if you're bristol city you, you're focusing on signing players training players developing players the academy and everything else and then winning games uh, winning matches and with Bristol Bears, it's the same. Um, what you get at a lot of sports clubs is, you know, if, if for example, your marketing and your commercial are all part of the same organisation, you've sort of got a bit of a split focus. And sometimes some of the performance staff get dragged into the more commercial activities and you get a bit of crossover. Um, so Bristol Sport is effectively there to be the, the commercial arm of all of those clubs. So Bristol City go out and worry about, you know, beating Huddersfield, you know, and, and things like that. And then they have, through Bristol Sport, there's a marketing team, communications team, social media teams, video teams, ticketing, IT, HR, everything else that a club would normally have under the same banner is, is you know, Bristol Sport take that away from them so that they can just focus on that. And uh, obviously the big benefit of this is that it's a lot more efficient in terms of the fact that you can have one Bristol sport marketing team can look after, you know, four or five clubs rather than each of those clubs having their own marketing team, their own IT team, their own HR team. It means you could be, more, you know, we have one office, for example, at Ashton Gate Stadium. Um, it, it's, it's more of an efficient way of, of using resources. And it also means that each of the clubs can benefit from the expertise of other clubs. So, you know, if you have one person uh, in one of the clubs who's really good at video, and make things like the gifts that went viral, um, you know, they can speak to the other clubs and they can all benefit from that, you know, from that skill set, really. Where did the concept come from? Where, how, how did that idea come about? So the idea came up, the story goes that uh, Steve Lansdowne, who is the, the owner of Bristol Sport, was in Barcelona. Um, and I believe he did the stadium tour. And uh, I've done the stadium tour myself. Um, and it, when you, you expect to go in and just see, you know, there's a messy shirts and everyone talking about Barcelona football, but actually there's a handball section, there's a basketball section and you realise, oh, actually it's, uh, you know, it's not just football that they do at Barcelona. And, you know, as, as you may know, you know, lots of teams in Europe run this model where you have a club like Real Madrid or Bayern Munich, but actually it's not just Bayern Munich football. They'll have other clubs and in EuroLeague basketball, you've got now Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, Barcelona. Like you say, they'll, you know, they'll also have maybe handball teams and some other sports all under the same banner and branding of say Barcelona. And uh, I think that idea struck a chord with Steve and thought, well, you know, in, in Bristol, you've got, you know, you've got a rugby team, you've got, you know, Bristol city football and you've got, um, Bristol Flyers basketball what if that concept could work in Bristol um and but the thing that we did differently which I personally quite like is that each team still kept their own identity each club having their own identity it means you can have Bristol Bears fans going to um you know we have Bristol Rovers fans going to Bristol Bears games um and it just means that you know you don't have to be a Bristol City fan to support you know the wider sports um in the group so it makes it much more inclusive for the city yeah, and I think you've answered my question as to why Bristol City rather than Bristol Rovers. It's obviously the, if the chairman of um, Bristol City was the one who came up with the concept. I guess for you guys, have you seen um, 
much crossover of expertise? I know you've mentioned a little bit of the marketing department there, but have you seen any real benefits in that aspect? I think, I think definitely. I mean, I'm put on a really simple um, level. You know, if, if, if our head of marketing has an idea and, and they try it for one of the clubs and it works, for example, they're going to use it for, you know, the rest of the clubs. Um, one of the really good examples we have is our um, Joel Osborne, who works in the, the Bristol Flyers um, media team. He was, you know, one of, he was really, um, you know, an early adopter of the GIFs. Um, we were using those for the basketball so then, um, you know, Joel was able to work with the other clubs and all the clubs started using gifts. And then um, when Bristol City beat um, Man United, which was a tough day for me because I'm a, I'm a Man United fan. But um, when, they, when they won that game, for example, I mean, the gifts, you know, from the, from the Joe Bryan and the Corey Smith goal got millions and millions of, of views. Um, you know, they were shown on Sky Sports News, they were shown on Soccer AM. And that's just an example how, you know, if we were all working in silos in different clubs in Bristol, you know, someone at Bristol Flyers has that idea, but the other clubs don't necessarily pick that up. Um, and, and then from a performance level as well, and Bristol Bears just built a new training ground, which is, you know, supposedly one of the best in the world. Um, so there'll be technology and processes and equipment, I'm sure, at that facility, which, you know, if it's working well for that team, they can share that expertise with Bristol City, for example, um, and they can look to adopt that, you know, process or technology as well. And is it something that you've seen, obviously it's quite widely used, I guess, in Europe, like you've mentioned earlier, is it something that you've seen um, clubs or people in this country take interest in, in terms of using it themselves? I think, I think people have an interest in it um, and on, on paper, it, you know, it works perfectly. It makes perfect sense. I think the difficulty is we're in quite a unique situation where, um, you know, our, like you said, Steve Lansdowne has had this vision. He's executed it and he's been able to do all that. The, the tough thing is in other cities, for example, is if you've got a big football team and you've got a big rugby team, for example, for those two to pair together, um, it's a lot of people don't like giving up control or, you know, that it's very it's very tough to have two clubs that will have competing interests and you know they'll both see themselves as the priority because that's what you do when you you know you run a business or you run a sports club working together um there's always going to be competing you know views um for example you know pitch use for example fixtures trying to accommodate you know a rugby team and a, and a football team on the same stadium on the same pitch you know to make things like that work, you've really got to be working in the same direction. And, you know, us already having the same owner for multiple clubs means that that's possible. But I think it, it, it's difficult with other clubs who are owned separately, uh, run, and they might be running very different ways, um, suddenly coming together and having to agree on doing everything the same way. Uh, for example, you know, if they're going to use the same, the same ticketing model, the same marketing model, the same communications model, it becomes very different to align even two clubs, yet alone three or four um, clubs. And, you know, Bristol Sport, if you include, you know, Bristol, Bristol City women, Bristol Bears women, you know, you've got five clubs plus the stadium, which, you know, is, in, is a 365-day event venue as well. There's so many different cogs and different parts that have to all work together in the same direction for it to work and there not be, you know, internal struggles and, and uh, yeah, and, and things that get in the way of it all working positively. So how do you manage that struggle? Because I'd imagine, you know, if you've got, you know, Bristol Bears have got a game on a Saturday at 
two, and then you've got Bristol City men's who've got a game at three. Obviously, you're marketing to, I guess, com compete in products. So how does that work in, in your environment? I think the, the benefit is with, with Bristol you know, City um, and Bristol Bears, they're never going to have a game at the same time because obviously they play at, play at the same venue on the same pitch. Um, so there's that benefit there. Sometimes, for example, we'll have a, you know, a clash where Bristol Flyers will have a home game on a Friday night at, at FGF College Arena where we play and Bristol Bears might have a home game at Ashton Gate Stadium. Um, so there is always slight clashes, um, but it, it's just something that you have to you have to manage in terms of there's always give and take. Um, a lot of the time, you know, the clubs have to accommodate each other for fixtures. Game, you know, a, a game for one club might have to move because, for example, Bristol City have advanced in the FA Cup. So I think it's give and take. But I think, again, it all starts at the top. And if the people at the top want it to work for all these clubs and want everyone to be pulling in the same direction, that filters down and everybody accommodates that vision. Um, that might not be the case if you have multiple clubs with different, you know, different visions and different um, owners. It can become quite difficult, I think. Yeah, and so moving, I guess, slightly to, to the marketing side, obviously you, you said there, and that's kind of the area that you work in. How, how in, in a basic premise, how do you go about getting bums on seats? Obviously, I know it's a little bit more difficult in COVID, but how do you go about, you know, promoting your products in a, in a way that represents them and the Bristol Sport brand accordingly? I think it's um it, it's different for each each club. I mean, um, for Bristol Flyers um, basketball, obviously we're we're a different proposition to rugby and football in the way that we know that if we get someone to come watch a game, they'll really enjoy it, and and we know that there is you know an interest in basketball across the UK. But it's one thing you know somebody having an interest in basketball and another than paying money to come and see something or finding out about it. When are the games? Where is it? So for Bristol Flyers, you know one of the big things we we need to do is create awareness. Um, that there is a professional basketball team in Bristol. It is a top flight basketball team. Um, but the, the funny thing with Flyers is that last season we sold out every game. So on one hand, we want to create this real buzz and we want to tell everyone about Brit British basketball and Bristol Flyers and who we are. But on the other hand, if I tell you about that and then you say, great, when can I watch a game? Well, the next two games might be sold out. And that's why, um, you know, Bristol Sport are looking to build a sports and convention centre next to Ashton Gate Stadium, which will, you know, up our capacity from, you know, circa 800 to, you know, circa 3,000. And that gives us a complete, because then we can really push the marketing out there and say to people, well, now we're telling you about it, but now you can go and watch games because we have that capacity. Um, so so with Flyers, it, it's all about creating awareness, um, showing people what the product is, where it is and how they can access it. For Bristol City and, and Bristol um, Bears, as you know, it's very different. You know, you know who Bristol City are. Um, you probably know who Bristol Bears are. Um, so the marketing becomes telling people about what fixtures are coming up. Um, and, it might, you know, there might be a, a game against Bath, so suddenly it's a big rivalry game or a game against Exeter or Gloucester. So it's, you know, a Southwest rivalry game. Um, or it might be, you know, a big European fixture. So it, it becomes about sort of marketing the fixture as an event, I guess, and and telling people what's coming up and, you know, what big players we might be playing or, or you know, a new sign-in starting for us. Is it so-and-so's first game back from injury? Um, and, and that's sort of how the games are marketed. The, obviously, the mechanics behind that go into, you know, using, you know, social media marketing. So, obviously, sports clubs and businesses are really good now at using, you know, targeted 
Facebook marketing, for example, um, and then the more traditional stuff. I mean, if you go around, you know, the city of Bristol, you'll see through Cabot Circus, you'll see, you know, the sort of bus stop billboards, electronic billboards um, showing, you know, artwork and, and video sort of gifts of, of upcoming fixtures. Just trying to let everyone, you know, in Bristol and the wider area know what fixtures are coming up for them to watch. And do you have analytics to figure out where your audiences are engaging um, with, with different marketing types? Yeah, I think anything digital these these days, you, there's analytic tools attached to it, uh, whether it's built into the software itself, so like the social media platforms, or, or you know, whether it's extra software, there's always ways to track, you know, I mean, things as easy as, you know, if, you, if, if, if any, me or you post something on social media and I can see if it's done well or not just by if people are liking it or people are sharing it or retweeting it, it's exactly the same for, for sports clubs, uh, whether it's a personal athlete trying to, you know, market themselves or it's, uh, um, you know, a sports club trying to market themselves or a fixture. There's always analytics to say, you know, what's working, what's not working. Um, and obviously, you know, if, if sports clubs are, are putting messaging out, they want to know what people are enjoying and, and what people are actually receptive to. So then they can put more of that out rather than, you know, trying different, methods that maybe aren't working as well and obviously you've, you've gone back to uh, the gifts and stuff which did take off i think everyone saw that and you know on my timelines and feeds i was seeing all the, the gift stuff pop up um kind of going back how do you get ideas like that how do you sit down and come up with something and go actually they might be able to engage with this is it more of a luck of the draw to whether people do engage with it or is it targeted using the analytics that you've managed to gather i think the, the analytics will tell you basic things such as are, are people more receptive to video rather than artwork or um you know are people more receptive to uh you know seeing a, a video going out or, or a piece of artwork advertising a fixture on the weekend or are they more receptive on a, on a monday morning before work or you know on their lunch break at work tell you things like that in terms of the actual content i mean I think a lot of it in the age of social media now, it's a copycat culture. So, someone will have an idea and it'll work well. And then other clubs will then adopt that idea. Um, and in my experience, America, um, maybe just because it's so much bigger, um, obviously your odds are much better of hitting a gold mine of an idea. But the American sports teams, I think, are brilliant at coming up with things like, you know, that, that's the first place I saw the gifts anyway. Um, you know, sort of the moving team lineups that you see on Sky Sports when people walk in and, you know, cross their arms and, and things like that. A lot of that I usually tend to see in America first and then it sort of filters through to English sport. Um, so I think a lot of it is that it's, it's being online and seeing what other clubs are doing and what's working well. Um, but the other thing that works really well is being reactive. So, you know, a lot of the times, um, you know, the clubs at Bristol Sport will announce players, announce new signings in quite creative ways. It's something that Bristol Bears especially have become renowned for. Um, Bristol Flyers and things that they've done. Um, they're, they're usually like movie scenes, like editing a player's face into a movie scene. Or um, with, with with Bristol um, Flyers, we announced a player. Um, where it was sort of a Love Island, um, so it was near the time Love Island was on, and everyone was watching it and talking about it. So we announced a player and sort of said, you know, this player is Coach K's type on paper, and then their head was on one of the you know the people that got selected. And that went down really well. We just actually announced our Bristol Flyers fixtures uh, for the BBL Cup 
and it's actually a it's like a a fake um, Tinder app. So it's the other clubs in the league, and it's sort of swiping right if we're playing them, swiping left if we're not. Um, and so d- different things like that. It's using things that are topical or things that you know probably will try and go a little bit viral because if it's going viral and people like the content, it's also telling people these are our fixtures coming up, but it's, it's a fun bit of content that they want to share and interact with anyway. Uh, you know, tag friends in. Um, it's, it's all about, especially for the basketball, it's all about exposure. The more people that know about it, our odds of people, you know, wanting to come and watch a game go right up. I guess, I guess that's one of the more fun parts of your job, right? Yeah, and it's, it's not something I, I do specifically myself, but we sort of, you know, it's, it's all about coordinating it internally, um, just, just making sure that we're all, um, you know, we're all doing on the same page and, and, you know, working towards the same goals. And it, that stuff's great. You know, anything creative, anything that's funny and goes viral, you know, on, on social media is, is brilliant for us. And the players like it as well. Um, and I think around the league, Bristol Flyers as well have got... Um, and, and Bristol Bears and the other clubs have got a reputation now of trying to think outside the box, come up with content and reacting to trends. Um, I think, you know, that the audience is getting younger and younger for clubs, especially on social media. Um, that's where the next generation of fans are going to come from. And I think they're a lot more likely to, to interact with things like this than maybe, you know, maybe a big billboard in town um, than the more traditional methods of sort of, you know, mail outs and things like that. And is there any, obviously you've mentioned there that um, America and American clubs, they do it particularly well. Is there anyone that you look at as that kind of the gold standard in this type of stuff? I think for um, for artwork and uh, the sort of the execution of how, how they put graphics together and how they create content around game day, um, I think Ohio State University football is... Um, so a college football team that I was recommended to follow and a few of the media guys, uh, Bristol Sport follow, they're brilliant, um, quite niche, I know. Um, but to be honest, any of the, any of the, you know, the basketball teams, the NFL teams, the, the standard all round's really good. Um, and, and you're seeing it now filter into the, into the Premier League and then clubs like Wolves that, you know, are becoming established Premier League teams now. The, the content they're putting out is great. Um, Southampton Football Club, especially, they, they've they've they're someone that get um someone that gets a lot of plaudits for sort of. I mean, they did a spoof video of the Firefest, um, and that was really good. I could tell you've seen that by your reaction. Um, yeah. and and videos like that are great because they engage people that as well aren't just into that specific football club or even into football. Um, but it creates a buzz and and it, you know it, it works around the excitement of sport away from the the match day or the game day. Um, and I, th- I think they're the type of things we need now to sort of build interest, especially at the moment when people can't go to games. So how are the challenges at the moment? Because that was going to be my next question. Obviously, you, you're creating buzz or, you know, there's a new sign and stuff that ideally people would want to go and see play. They can't. So how how's that affecting kind of that side in terms of the, the buzz created, etc.? At the moment, the, the difficulty is, again, different for each sport. So um, Bristol Bears were able to finish their, their season last year, uh, albeit very late, and they're starting again soon. So for them, the games are happening as normal. Uh, same with Bristol City. Um, you know, play, they played last night. Games are happening. For Bristol Flyers, we were supposed to start the, um, the season a few weeks ago, but we actually had uh, a case of COVID within the team. So we've then had to, you know, the rule is at the moment, because there's so many fixtures to, um, to fit in, the BBL Cup fixtures, which is a cup competition at the start of our season, 
if, if you can't basically field a team, you have to forfeit the game. So it's tough for us because we haven't bounced the ball and we're, you know, zero wins, two losses. Um, so, so, so that's obviously difficult. Um, we've obviously been uh, putting out loads of content, showing our fan base we're ready to go. Um, we've announced all our signings, you know, we've announced the kit, all the excitement was building. And whilst fans couldn't come, you know, we, we were streaming the games and everyone was ready to watch those games. We've had to obviously cancel those two games, which means that uh, our first game now isn't until the 13th of November. So that'll be our, our next game and that'll be our first home game. So the tough thing for us at the moment is we're creating a buzz, creating a buzz, and then suddenly, oh, there's been a delay because of this or that. Um, and now, obviously, with the lockdown measures, um, it, it, it just makes things even more uncertain. So, so at the at the moment, we we try and create as much of a buzz as we can with the content, and the, the guys in our media team will, will you know go down and 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 film training videos, pre match interviews, and all the traditional things you know that you can imagine, and and match previews. But yeah, it's, it's all it's all about keeping that interest there so that when we can go, uh, which is hopefully be very soon now. Uh, the fan base is ready for it. They're informed. They know, you know, who's going to be playing, how they can watch it, um, and the implications of those games. And how has the challenges been in terms of streaming? Because obviously, I know that particularly in football at the moment, there's a little bit of um, backlash regarding the fee that people have to pay on on top of their Sky subscription or BT subscription. How has the challenges been for you guys in terms of setting up a stream and obviously making it usable for those that want to watch it and all that type of stuff? So so the, for Bristol Bears, um, BT Sport obviously have the coverage of the rugby. So the other games have usually been made available on sort of the, a red button type system. So, I mean, fans have been able to watch pretty much every Bristol Bears game through, through BT Sport. So not much would have changed there. Obviously for, for Bristol City, um, they've, they've had to go down the model of, you know, against similar fans paying for matches. Um, I think the, the software that was set up hasn't been too difficult again for us because we're quite lucky that we've got the expertise cross sport. We have people that work, you know, full time in these areas in the business, and also companies we work with that can fill the gaps that we don't have in expertise. Uh, I think it would have been more difficult for some other clubs. Um, and and as you go down the pyramid in sport, it will become more and more difficult due to less full time staff or, you know, less resources, less 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 money to buy this, you know, the infrastructure needed. Um, in, in in basketball, that's that's what's you know the challenge has been in basketball is everyone just getting. At the moment, I think games are games are streamed with automated cameras at venues. So a lot of the clubs already have those installed, which is good. But it's just translating that technology into, you know, if, if you can only watch a stream and you can't go to games, obviously everyone wants the standard to be a bit higher. So that's what we're trying to do across the league is raise that standard. I know from our point of view, you know, we've gone from the game just being streamed and us having a commentator to, you know, pre-match VTs, you know, adverts in between breaks, um, you know, more graphics, more like videos of the players spliced into the footage. So it becomes more like you're watching a game on, you know, Sky Sports or BT Sport rather than watching it on YouTube uh, as sort of a traditional live stream. So I think, and I think everyone's had to do it very quickly as well. Um, obviously the, you know, the BBL season's now started. So it's, it's something that we have had to get in place quite quickly and, you know, different clubs would have been able to cope with that in different ways. Uh, but hopefully everyone will be, you know, ready to go from sort of, yeah, from our perspective from next weekend forward anyway. And I guess one of the challenges is you're trying to do all this whilst 
socially distance if you're recording stuff or on you know limited budget with, with current COVID climate and all that type of stuff I guess that's what are the issues a lot of clubs are facing as well. Yeah, it is. You know, it changed the, the amount of measures, you know, and it's obviously great. You, you need to put the measures in, but it's, 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 there's so much you've got to think about. Um, and, you know, we were with Bristol Flyers specifically, you know, we were, we thought we were going to have, you know, fans at our first game until about two weeks before that game. So, so everything that we were preparing, you know, one way systems around the venue, changing the layout to, you know, keep the players further away from the fans. And we, we'd done so much planning. Um, and, and then we found out that the test events in other sports had been cancelled. And obviously the, the government announcement was there won't be any test events. There won't be any fans at sports, you know, um, completely changed the, the scope of what we were doing. So, so now it's obviously there's not as much challenges because of welcoming fans will be the, you know, will take the most planning. Um, it's obviously where we all want to get to, but at the moment that's not what we can do. So yeah, just when we're interacting with the players and things like that, you'd have to put lots of processes in place to, to be as safe as possible. Even something as simple as, you know, getting a shirt signed for a sponsor becomes, you know, there has to be a process in place. You can't use the same pens and different, it, it really comes down to every everyday things. You really need to change the way you do everything. And obviously I know our team at the moment having Zoom calls, you know, to arrange, you know, um, strategy behind the games that are coming up and it's just a completely different world isn't it and is there anything that you guys will take away from the marketing work that you've done um, that you'll carry on doing even when this all goes back to normal I think I don't think the digital um, I don't think the digital side of things will will change too much because obviously it is uh, you know, a socially distanced activity of us, us putting content out for, for a social audience. Um, I, th I think there are things that will help. I think things like having the, um, I think the way of working, uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of remote working, a lot of Zoom calls, a lot of meetings to arrange things when people are in different places. We had, for example, you know, our coach, Andreas Kapoulis, is, um, you know, has, has, was the England coach at the Commonwealth Games. So, you know, he would have been out of the country for part of the season. Um, in Australia and things like this if Zoom and, and things that I had have been more commonplace then I think they would have had they would have found that so much easier you know things like players being on international duty for Bristol City but still needed to be in contact and you know maybe attend team meetings and things like that um, while they're away I think you've got so much more options now with you know everyone I'd never really heard of you know Zoom before before COVID-19 really and I think a lot of people are in the same boat and I think I think remote workings helped a lot in terms of the day-to-day -day operations, how we do things. When people are in different locations, you know, might have someone getting treatment for a for an injury abroad or in a different hospital in a different part of the UK. I think it's going to help teams operationally and and businesses operationally work work better together. I think that's going to be the big takeaway from lockdown. I think. Cool. So I guess moving forward, if you want to explain kind of the setup of um, the BBL. Um, kind of what what teams and stuff are in it because obviously there might be some people in here that don't necessarily follow UK basketball so it'd be interesting to see how it's dispersed over the country and all that type of stuff yeah so the BBL is the British Basketball League and it's it's a top flight league in Britain um, there's one team from Scotland which is Glasgow Rocks um, and then apart from that the rest of the teams are based in England um, You've got, uh, you know, Plymouth Raiders and, and Bristol Flyers in sort of the southwest. You've got teams in the Midlands. You've got you got Worcester, um, and you know you've got Leicester Riders, Newcastle Eagles. So you've got countries sort of spanning 
uh, sorry, team spanning across the country. Um, it's it's a format where you know teams play each other throughout the season. There's a cup competition and a trophy competition, and then you know as is traditional with the more American sports, at the end of the season there's the playoffs, and everything becomes about the playoffs. Even if you finish first in the league, you know you do get plaudits for finish first in the league, but everybody wants to win the playoffs. Um, and there's three major finals events. So we have the BBL Cup, uh, the BBL Trophy and, and the playoff final all take place in arenas across the UK. So, I mean, the O2 Arena in London holds the playoff final, for example. Um, and and all, all those events are usually sellouts. Um, they're shown on BBC um, on the red button and things like that. So everything we do in the season builds up to those three big events, um, which at the moment, obviously, you know, wouldn't have, wouldn't have the... The fans that they usually would um, if things carry on the way they are but yeah that's sort of the league setup and in terms of players um, there's homegrown players who will play for those clubs but a lot of the league you know similar to, to other sports leagues will be import players um, we get a lot of players from America play across the league um, we're an attractive league for American players because obviously we're an English-speaking country um, and, um, you know, for those of you who don't know, obviously you've got the, you know, the collegiate system in America, the NCAA has all these great players, but a very small percent make it to the NBA, say, or the NFL. Uh, and lots of those players still want to go pro. So then they look to, you know, Europe, Australia, South America, you know, to go and play their trade for clubs all around the world. So, yeah. So how, how were the team destinations made up? Was it just the areas and people that had interest or was, was there a more strategic look at that? It's, it's a lot more organic than that. Um, if, if, if the BBL was starting from scratch, I mean, you're seeing it with the Big Bash League and cricket now, aren't you? When a, um, you know, when a new, not the Big Bash League, sorry, what's the, what's 100. the, the hundred, the hundred, that's it. Sorry, with the hundred in England that if you create a league from scratch, you can go, okay, where do we strategically want to put teams and, and things like that? Um, with the BBL, it, you know, it's grown more organically than that. So there would have, if, if, if you want to be in the BBL, you have to have the infrastructure. So you have to have, you know, you have to have a talent pool of players coming through that you can access. So usually an academy or a partnership with an academy. You have to have a venue that's, you know, up to standard to play games in that can hold the requisite amount of fans um, and, and, you know, looks a certain way on camera and things like that. And the big one is, you know, you have to have the resources. So you have to have, you know, a management structure or an ownership model or, or the reserves to run a basketball team, um, you know, from day one to be able to pay the salary of a basketball team, to be able to operate, you know, pay the operating costs associated with running a, running a sports club in the UK. Um, so it's it, it's not so much a case of, a, you know, let's put pins on the map and say, well, we'd like to have teams. I think there's areas where the league would like to have teams now. Um, you know, there's, there's obvious gaps so that, you know, there's not a team in Wales, um, uh, there's not a team in Birmingham. There was in the past. So um, I think, you know, the hope is long term that we get more teams in the BBL and, and, you know, in more areas in the UK. But teams have to have, you know, the resources to do that. And then where, so in terms of like owners and stuff of, of teams, is it just people that obviously are pretty wealthy and have an interest in basketball or is it other other areas because I know if you look at it in comparison to maybe the NBA they're highly sought after you've got people like Mark Cuban you know who's a multi-millionaire mm. um and they're you know the, the the profile of the NBA is almost a 
kind of investment as well as them having to pay out salaries, etc. What does that look like in, in, in the BBL? It varies quite a lot. Um, you have a lot of teams that, you know, ha- have built up to the level where they can be a BBL club o- over many, many years. Um, so that would have usually started, you know, at, at a very amateur level. It would have been creating a club, creating an academy, getting to a point where, you know, you go up the the leagues. So there's, there's a national league structure in England, you know, below the BBL, where, you know, it varies year on year, but you have a few different divisions. And obviously division one is the, the top, top division. Um, and, you know, a lot of clubs like Bristol Flyers, for example, they were, a, you know, a Division 2, a Division 1 team. And then you become a really competitive Division 1 team and then you want that next step. And that next step is the BBL. You can't get promoted into the BBL. You have to apply to be in the BBL and you have to, you know, you're almost setting it up as a new BBL franchise, even though you're an existing basketball club. So some of the clubs, you know, have grown organically out of that where they've been, you know, a basketball team for all these years and they've gathered enough support and enough expertise um, and enough success to then want that next step. And then, you know, financially it can be, you know, organically built up from that. So, you know, even in the lower leagues, if you're, you know, you're selling tickets to games, you're selling sponsorship and you're getting bits of investment from different places because you're building up a profile in that city, you might then be ready to go up. In other cases, you know, in our case, for example, you know, Bristol Flyers was acquired, you know, as part of Bristol Sport. So, you know, that becomes, we, you know, Bristol Flyers have grown to a level where they were a really competitive, established club, but not a BBL club. To do that, we needed the investment. And that's what Bristol Sport provided. And that's why Bristol Flyers are in the BBL now. So it varies a lot. It's, it's not, as you say, like America, where, you know, or, or Premier League football, where you, you get loads of, you know, rich investors that just take their pick of a club that might be available and, you know, look to take that club over. It's, it's usually more organic than that. It's usually, you know, built out of someone with a connection to the club. Um, but it, but it, does, it does vary quite a lot. Each club looks very different in, in the BBL operationally. And in terms of, um, like, I guess, coaching staff provision and um, playing provision, are they all full-time? Is it a mixture of roles? What, what does that look like? And I guess from club to club, you, you're going to have some that maybe have quite a lot of financial backing. Um, and others yep. maybe have to be a bit a bit tight on the purse strings. How does that affect when you're trying to recruit, as you said, these players either from the UK or players from um, the NCAA or Europe who you're trying to get in to improve your um, team? I think, again, um, you know, I'll probably sound like a broken record saying it, but different to other sports, every club in the BBL is very, very different. You've got some of our clubs. So, for example, Surrey Surrey Scorchers, um, you know, have a really big partnership with University of Surrey. So you have a few few clubs in the league who have a big university partner. Um, If you have that, obviously, you suddenly have access to resources through that partnership. So that might be, like you say, you know, physios and, you know, support staff for the first team. Um, you have other clubs who don't have, you know, partnerships with uh, universities and places like that, but maybe they have, you know, they have bigger resources so they can look to employ more staff directly aside from any partnership with, you know, a university or an education programme. Um, so it, it varies a lot. Each, you know, different clubs will be good at different things. You've got, you know, some clubs very strong on the media side, but maybe not as as strong on the playing side because of, you know, resources. And then you'll have the exact opposite in other places. You'll have teams that you may be really good on the playing side, but not so good on the other side. So it, it's every team's probably got a few areas that they want to improve on. Um, 
and, and that's the aim basically over over you know the the next few years um is, is for everyone to sort of you know bring bring the levels up of the of the areas that they're not as strong on um so that we sort of get everyone on a level playing field and with all the with all the players in the BBL be full time um not all of them um a, a large percentage will it you know it is a professional top flight league um but you know similar to other sports you'll see you know some players will you know still have other career paths on the side um you know it's a big gamble to throw everything just into professional sport you know, in any walk of life. Um, but I but I think, um, you know, a lot of people still want to have, a, you get a lot of, say, people that want to be like personal trainers or, you know, a lot of people do like mentoring, sort of roles like that that sit nicely alongside being a um, basketball player because it's difficult. You know, you might have basketball, for those of you who don't know, is a sport where, you know, you can have multiple games in a week, you know, and in the BBL, you could have a game on the Friday and a game on the Saturday uh, or a game on the Saturday, game on the Sunday. So, I mean, if you're if you're trying to have a career alongside that and you need to say, oh, I've suddenly now got a cup game next Friday, I need the day off work, it's a difficult situation. Whereas if you've got a job like a personal trainer or a mentor or, you know, jobs where you're in control of your time, you can then adjust your diary and your calendar around that. So, yeah, to answer your question, you, you get a lot of players that are professional. You know, most, most of the players that come from abroad are professional. Um, but, you know, like a lot of the homegrown players, um, you know, may have careers alongside because they've probably got roots in that area anyway or in the UK anyway. So they might have other things they want to pursue alongside basketball and it's not the be all and end all of their of their sort of career. And does that present challenges for teams, I'd imagine, in terms of, you know, players trying to juggle that or having some players that are full time, others aren't? I imagine that has some difficulties that come along with it. I think usually once a player sort of made the decision to to commit to that season and that team, they they become part of that team for the season and they usually have committed, you know, on the basis that they can fit their other um, responsibilities around being a player for that team. And they've probably had that conversation with the coach or, you know, with, with their job or, or, or their partner or whoever it is. Um, so usually, you know, you'll see, you know, you wouldn't a lot of the time be able to watch it, watch a BBL game and say, OK, well, that player's probably, you know, full time, that player's not. Um, they do really become part of the team and, you know, usually be involved in the exact same way and all sorts of commercial requirements, and things like that. You will have obviously occasional logistical issues, maybe with training and things like that if they're trying to work around their work schedule. But I think most of the time now, um, most of the teams are professional, definitely the main core of the team. So that's not so much of an issue. So I guess one of the, the big challenges for, for you in, in your role and the BBL as a whole is to try and grow the, the sport itself. If you look kind of at the NBA, obviously that's massive. You look at the NCAA, you've got March Madness, which is massive. You look at, you know, the continent, you've got um, the Euro League and stuff with, you know, Real Madrid, Barcelona and, and the teams out there, which is huge. And to a certain degree, at least from the outside looking in, I could be wrong. It looks like England has struggled to a certain degree to get like a real good foothold um, into the market share. Is that something you guys are trying to address? And is that something, I guess, how are you going to address that to try and make it increasingly popular for people to play and not just for you? I think that's that's the really interesting thing about about basketball in England is if, if you ask most people that are into sport and even people that aren't into sport, you know, do you like basketball? They'll probably say yes. 
um, and and they probably would like to go and watch basketball. And they probably, you know, most people say the classic, you know, I played basketball at school um, and I really liked it. But then obviously once it comes off the curriculum in PE or whatever, then they're not going to go out and seek basketball. It has to sort of be put in front of them. So the really interesting sort of conundrum in, in England is basketball is a popular sport. It's a cool lifestyle sport as well. You'll see loads of people go around wearing the jerseys, wearing the hats with logos on. Um, the appetite is there. I think the biggest thing about basketball in the UK is just exposure. Um, and I think exposure is going to come from broadcast coverage and, and media coverage of the sport in the UK. And the more, the more of that that we get, the more people are going to be inspired by it, the more people are going to play it. I mean, at the moment, it's, you know, there's a lot of stats that, you know, put basketball as the, as the second highest participation sport behind football in the UK, which surprises a lot of people, you know, given you've got rugby, cricket and sports like that. But this, if, if you go down to a park and you see a street court, you'll see loads of people just playing. Uh, it's a really high participation sport. But even there, they'll all know NBA. They'll know NBA teams. They'll be, you know, shouting LeBron's name when they take a shot and things like that. But how do we get them to actually go, well, look, there's, there's a basketball team in your city. Why don't you go and watch them? It's awareness. Um, and I think once once we can get the big thing that teams are focusing on the bbl is really trying to sort out their venues so you've got you know newcastle eagles and leicester riders are now playing in their own arenas um you know plymouth raiders play at the pavilions london lions play at the, at the copper box so more and more teams now are playing in venues which if you just look at it look like a really good basketball venue either on camera or when you go there you know it's more of an arena model than sort of a sports complex model and I think over the next, you know, five to 10 years, that's what teams are really going to focus on because it, it's a domino effect. If everyone right now was playing in an arena that looked like an NBA arena, you know, Sky Sports and BT Sport would look at your product and say, oh, wow, this looks amazing. We want to put that on TV. If it's on TV, people like yourself will be scrolling through the channels and you'll see it, you'll watch a bit of it, and then you'll hopefully watch more of it. Suddenly we really grow the exposure in the product and, and even, you know, high, highlights like, you know, huge dunks or game winning three pointers. If they go viral, you want the clip that goes viral to be the best, you know, visual quality clip that you can get. So that's the media coverage. Hopefully it's broadcast standard because it's been shown on, you know, a, a top broadcaster. So I think I think the exposure is, is the real big key. The more people that see it and know about it, um, but the domino effect of that is broadcast coverage, just media coverage in general, you know, things like local local news channels, you know, talking about the basketball results on the news after they've covered the football and the rugby, um, you know, social media outlets and channels. You've got like, you know, channels like Joe and Bleacher Report and they cover football so much. The more channels that are picking up bits of basketball highlights here and there. You know, BBC Sport and Sky Sports are both talking about the BBL now. If you see the ticker on Sky Sports, it'll mention the BBL. BBC Sport has a, a basketball section on the website. All of that is going to contribute to, you know, the awareness of it. And once people can can watch games and be inspired by it, I think you'll see the an even bigger spike in participation um, and, and creating fans of the game, really. And is that something that each club has tried to work together with or is that something like the BBL as their own entity have tried to get greater exposure for the league itself? I think it's a bit of both. I think, I think the, you know, the BBL for me is only as, only as strong as the clubs. Um, I think, I think each, you know, each club's trying to create, and it's not, you know, uniform, each club will do different things. Um, they'll put out different types of content at different frequencies, but I think it's, you know, it's really down to the clubs. 
if the clubs are producing great content um, and, you know, shouting about what they're doing, highlights, you know, making their players stars. So allowing you to get to know the players off the, off the court and things like that, that content can be shared by the BBL. It can be collated into, you know, top 10 plays of the month, which are things that they do now. Um, but without the clubs creating that content and pulling those resources into doing those types of things, the BBL doesn't have the, you know, the content to collate at the end. I mean, if you follow, you know, Premier League football, for example, they'll, you know, they might do top 10 goals of the month, but those, go, you know, goals would have been filmed by, for example, Sky Sports or BT Sport that the league has the partnerships with and the clubs will be shouting about that footage and, and showing that footage on their channels. Um I, th I, th I think the club, it's down to the clubs really to, to lead the way and then the BBL can really, you know, put that all together. So looking at it in terms of a playing context, because obviously in an ideal world, you want this to kind of filter through where obviously, as you said, you get more participation, you get more um, homegrown players in the league and, and, and doing well and stuff. Um, and then I guess moving forward, you'd want them to go into national teams or that type of stuff. How do you think that we could go about doing that? How do you think you could get to a stage where we're able to produce really good, young, talented players that can either excel in the BBL or potentially go and, and do really well in Europe or uh, maybe even in the NBA? So I think, um, yeah, there's, there's a few strings to this. I mean, for myself, I, I didn't really get into basketball. I used to play and I didn't really get into basketball properly till sort of like year seven or eight. Um, and, and it's tough in the way that, you know, you will play it a little bit at school, but you've really got to enjoy it because if you enjoy it at school, you've then got to go out and you've got to try and find yourself a club. Um, and, and there's lots of basketball clubs about, but obviously there's no, you know, nowhere near the same level of, for example, rugby clubs or football clubs in the UK. Um, so you've, it's how do you develop that passion for it that then makes you go out and, and, and really want to play it, you know, and, and make the effort, probably speak to your parents and, um, you know, make the effort to go and find a club. And I think, again, you know, if when I was in, you know, when I was younger and now obviously kids have access to social media so young, I think if you're seeing basketball highlights and you're, you know, you're seeing, you know, info about basketball in the UK, I think that's going to inspire you so much more at a younger age and you're going to get the kids that don't, um, you know, don't necessarily have the passion for football or rugby or cricket or other traditional sports, or even if they do, because, you know, kids play multiple sports, go out and try basketball. And I think the earlier we can get kids going out and trying basketball, you know, the, like you say, the higher odds we're going to have to, you know, for talent ID purposes and everything else to find more players. Um, similarly, you know, the more, BBL clubs and national league clubs that we have in, in the UK and there are a lot of clubs the more there's going to be you know Saturday sessions in your city and different areas of your city the more you're going to have you know all the BBL clubs run community programs so you know coaches will be going into schools and coaching basketball for a term so you know instead of getting a PE teacher you know teaching basketball which you know some PTs are great at coaching basketball but some won't have the expertise you're actually getting a, you know, a level two basketball coach come into your school and, you know, the level of coaching you're going to get there and, and also the information because they're going to be able to, you know, identify kids that look like they could play club level and they're going to funnel them off to those clubs. They're going to say, OK, look, why don't you go to the Bristol Flyers Saturday morning session or the Plymouth Raiders, you know, Tuesday night session. Um, so you're going to find you've got you've got you've got a wider net cast effectively to to find players that then get recommended to clubs um, speak to the parents and say look I think you know your kids very tall is very good why don't you try a 
you know, Saturday morning session. So I, I, th I think they're the sort of key growth indicators and they're things that are increasing. Um, you know, all the BBL clubs and a lot of national league clubs have, you know, lots of grassroots coaching opportunities and, and school-linked coaching opportunities as well. And is that something that you think um, could be supported by, like, the, the, the top-tier league? So I'm thinking, as an example, if you had people from the NBA come across to try and help grow the sport, if you could get hold of someone, maybe not LeBron James, because that would be, you know, you've <laughs> probably got a lot of laundry list of stuff we want to do. But if you could get hold of, like, a Jimmy Butler who could then come and do you know, a tour around the UK to try and increase participation or that type of stuff. Is that something that you'd welcome that type of support from that outside agency? Yeah, I mean, the NBA, you know, Europe and, and wider, obviously, but looking at our situation, Europe is, is a massive um, operation. They, you know, they had the NBA UK game here, um, the London game for a good few years. It's just moved to Paris now. Um, but, they, but they run events and things like that where they come over. But I think um, it's about sort of sustained exposure and I think if we can get you know an NBA player over to England every now and then that's amazing I mean Steph Curry was in London recently for, for an Under Armour event I think um, that's brilliant but realistically we can't I think we can't expect the NBA to almost do it for us and I think the feedback we get is if you're if you're a, a kid in school and you know a six eight BBL player walks in in full you know tracksuit kit and you know there's a hoop and he goes and does a dunk and the kids can watch it that kid doesn't know if it's, you know, LeBron James or if it's a BBL player or if it's a Spanish league level player. They're just inspired by seeing this big athletic guy, um, you know, do something really skillful and really powerful, really fast. And I think that's the key. I think that for the young kids, and that's, you know, where we need to be inspiring people to play and to, to come and watch and to become fans and players of the game in the UK, they, they'll be inspired by a BBL player. Um, so I think it's down to the clubs um, to to really grow the game in their community and the more clubs we have the more communities we have and the more work we're doing in those communities is creating um you know it's, it's creating a fan base and something newcastle eagles do really well in england they run they run loads of leagues uh, loads of central venue leagues around newcastle and the wider area those kids they want to play basketball they enjoy it but when they grow up they become fans and they then go and watch the newcastle eagles games so as well as newcastle eagles creating players in their community they're also creating future fans and obviously hopefully when those boys and girls grow up their children then play and their children then become fans and it becomes a generational support that you get in football and other sports like that but it's sustainable it's not running a big marketing campaign and getting a load of people in to watch one game and then go it's a lot more of a sustainable you know if you're creating a basketball community in your city you're creating a sustainable you know resource for your club effectively to, to, to keep growing and to get bigger and is it is it long term would you like to go down like the academy route where each club's got an academy where they can filter through or do you think that just trying to make it as wide a reach as you can and then then naturally kind of drifting into a, a bbl team is a more efficient way to go a lot of them a lot of clubs will have either their own academy or like an affiliate academy um, it, looking at our situation, we, we uh, you know, we're based at SGS College. Um, uh, so we have, there's an SGS College Basketball Academy. Um, so we, we, we have, you know, I think we've got three or four academy players training with us this season. Uh, one that played last season as well. And then we've got another player who 
was a former FGF um, college academy student who went to play pro abroad, played in Israel, um, also played for, for a London team and then has come back and playing for us now in a second year. So, you know, the basketball academies around the UK are creating talent, you know, BBL level talent. Um, our sort of club legends, a guy called Greg Street, and he went right through the, the sort of programme in Bristol played, you know, Flyers Juniors, went all the way through and then became the captain and played with us for years through the other leagues and then in the BBL. Um, so I think it's really important for clubs to have, you know, an academy structure uh, because, again, you know, with the resources available in the league, if you can create some of your own players, you know, that's a player you don't need to go out and sign from America. Um, you know, it's a player that already lives in your city, uh, already wants to play for your club. So um, I think most clubs, you know, Le Leicester Riders have a you know a partnership with you know they've got Charnwood and they've also got um, Loughborough University. The university pathway is another one because you'll get players who maybe aren't quite good initially to come to and play for your BBL team, or you're not aware that they're at that level, and then they go for the university team that you're partner with and they play there. And actually, you go oh, this this player could be good enough for the BBL team, so they can come across. So as well as the junior teams and, you know, a lot of teams have women's teams and, uh, and academy programs, second teams, things like that. Having an academy is, in my opinion, you know, a crucial piece of the puzzle, really, as we see in other sports. And how, how does it compare to in Europe? Because obviously, if you, if you look at the NBA at the moment, particularly a team that I like, the San Antonio Spurs, they're normally... You know, littered with um, foreign players that come across, and you think Tony Parker, Boris Diaw, etc. How do how does the UK compare and compete against um, some of the European countries? Because I know that they have quite a, a thirst for knowledge, uh, quite a thirst for basketball, and obviously at the moment there seems to be quite a big import um, of players, even from places like. Um, Slovenia and Latvia and all those types of places. And you've got Porzingis and Luka Doncic, etc. So how do we compare to that? And if we're behind, how do we get to the stage where we, we're getting a lot of UK imports um, at the top level? Well, I think, like you say, a lot of those countries that you mentioned, so especially Lith Lithuania being one, um, I know you mentioned Latvia, but Lithuania, they have a, basketball is like I think it's their national sport is so popular in in some countries around Europe and what I said about you know in England you might have tried it at school they would have really played it at school um, and, and a lot of those clubs in other countries um, the PE setup I think in places like France and Greece is very different where you do a lot of your um, activity with local clubs rather than doing it in-house um, so you know they might have at a very young age you know had exposure to you know, a top Lithuanian, for example, a BBL club, coaching structure and facilities and, and even players and things like that. So they get inspired and coached and sort of, you know, exposed to the pro level um, basketball in that country at such a young age in such an effective way. Um, and then obviously the legacy of that is, you know, you inspire more kids at a younger age, you create more stars, you know, in, in the NBA. You've got, you know, Giannis um, from, I'm not going to try and say his surname, but from Greece. Um, and you've got, like you said about the Spurs, you know, Manu Ginobili from Argentina, all these different countries. The more pros you have, Spain's a great example. There's, there's loads of Spanish players in the NBA now. The more, you know, pros you have at the top level, those guys get exposure in their national press and everything else so that the kids see that. And that inspires them and that makes them want to play and they show more games on TV because obviously they've got a national interest in those games or those leagues. Um, 
so 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 I, th I think I think that's a big part of it. But I think um, it's it's just, it, again it's it's about raising the interest and exposure in those countries because you know, you mentioned the other leagues. You know, outside of the NBA, you've got the um, the NBL in Australia has become really really big. Um, NBA teams you know played against some of their teams in preseason recently, uh, and then you've got the Euroleague, which is sort of like you know the football champions league but it's more like a league right, that runs aside your league rather than just a cup competition. There's a lot more games. Um, and, you know, that league is littered with teams like, you know, um, Chesco Moscow and, you know, Real Madrid and Barcelona, Bayern Munich and these huge names and all their players, you know, for example, Bayern Munich will have loads of German players, Barcelona will have loads of Spanish players. So, you know, the, B the BBL is a top flight league. It's a very fast league. It's a good league, but it's not EuroLeague level. Uh, and the domestic leagues of, you know, Spain, Russia, Greece are at a higher level than the BBL, but the BBL is creeping up. So what we've got to do is try and grow the league as much as we can um, so that we're getting to the level of, of some of these leagues like, you know, France and Germany. Uh, and one of the big ways that happens is obviously, like I said before, about exposure. More people know about it, more people want to come watch it, more people will want to sponsor it, want to invest in it. More TV companies will want to, you know, want to show games at good times. Um and then it links back to the venue thing. You know, better venues attracts better players, attracts better sponsorship and TV audiences. People are more likely to, you know, go and watch a game in your city if you just built a new arena or you've opened a new venue than they will if, you know, you're playing somewhere that they don't know about in a different part of the city, for example. Uh, it all sort of goes hand in hand, I think. And they're just a little bit ahead of us, some of those countries. And are you quite... Uh, optimistic? Are you optimistic that you, you guys are currently on the right route and that, you, that it's going to pay dividends in the long term? I, I, yeah, we are because we're, we're seeing results. I think, um, you know, I mentioned venues. Uh, a few clubs have opened their own venues or, you know, have really good partnerships with good venues. For example, your Glasgow Rocks playing the, the Emirates Arena um, and, and you've got people playing in really good arenas that other people are used to going and watching, you know, um, gigs or comedy there and things like that. So it's putting on the map a lot more. Uh, the broadcasting interest, you know, when I was younger, um, I, I never really accessed the BBL. Um, it, it was, there was, I think it was, there was a, like a BBL player similar to NBA League Pass, um, which I didn't have. But then now, you know, last, last few seasons, you've been able to watch every game home and away streamed um you know you've had people like um you know you, you're getting more like bbc putting games on the red button and putting streaming games live online on their site and um, there's other talks happening at the moment about new broadcast opportunities i think and i think the fact that that's all trending upwards and it feels quite sustainable you see some sports leagues where they'll get a flash of investment and suddenly things will spike and go really good for a few years and then they'll settle right down when that investment disappears or uh, but but the way I think the BBL and the clubs are growing at the moment is, is sustainably. They're not just spending a lot of money on little things. They're, they're growing with the, with the club and other opportunities are happening as a result of that. And I guess it's a positive if you can get to a stage where, you know, you, you're seeing it a lot more on, on TV, a lot more on Sky Sports and, um, and raising that exposure. Um, I guess the challenges you face, like you said, is you've got, um, EuroLeague, you've got the league in Australia, you've got China, etc. as well, who are, are also big in that. Um, I, I guess the, the, the key for you guys is to just keep making sure you put a good product on so people want to keep coming back. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That, that's that's the thing. You know, all, all we can do is keep keep improving, you know, 
keep improving different bits each season um, so that when, you know, teams, different teams receive investment or, you know, uh, have access to a new facility and do all the things that we're talking about, new broadcast opportunities come about, that the product on the floor is good. And, and you know, leading nicely into into that is, you know, a few years ago, Leicester Riders, um, you know, entered um, a European competition um, and, and now this year, um, you know, we've got London Lions are in a European competition um, and and that's that's something that you know is a is a goal for a lot of the British clubs is to become you know a, t- a team that competes in the, the, you know like football and other sports there's a few different tiers of European competitions and below the Euro League you've got things like the Basketball Champions League the Euro Cup and there's opportunities there for you know for British teams and I mean, London Lions you know played one of their games recently and they lost very narrowly at the end um, Leicester Riders had a lot of very close games so. You know, we're not as far away from teams that, you know, people would say are established European teams as we think. Um, it's just about the infrastructure behind these clubs, making that sustainable so that rather than teams going into Europe for a year and then come maybe coming back a few years later, we've got multiple teams in those leagues every year. Um, and that, that's the goal, really. And this could be completely ignorant. And if it is, tell me. It w- would it... Would you ever want to get to a stage where you had maybe older ex-NBA players coming across and playing in your league? I, I think if you look at the other way with football, you have a lot of MLS where players go out and play out there. Um, I know obviously you've got examples, I think it's Stephen Marbury who, who went out to China and has played out there and there's a few different people that have done that. Would you ever want to get to a stage where you had you know these high-profile ex-NBA players that are coming across and and choosing the BBL to play in, or is that not something for the sustainability of the sport that would interest you guys? I think it would depend on the situation. I mean, right now, um, you've, with London Lions, I mentioned that you know, they have a player called um, DeAndre Liggins, um, and and you know, so they've I think they've got about two two former NBA players on their roster this year. Um, Byron Mullins, who's who's actually a, a British passport player, I think. Um, and uh, yeah, so and there's also a player called Kevin Ware, who was a really high profile um, NCAA Div 1 sort of college athlete um, who had a very famous leg injury a few a few years ago. But so that is sort of already happening a little bit. Um, the, the news was recycling the old footage of uh, when Dennis Rodman came and played for the Brighton Bears a few years after he was in the, uh, the, the English sort of celebrity big brother. Uh, I think it's good because obviously creates a buzz. Um, again, it just comes down to that fact, is it, is it sustainable? Um, w- you know, would I rather, you know, BBL get a lot of attention because, you know, for a few years, a few NBA players come and teams sort of break the bank to get those players and then they all disappear and then the exposure sort of goes with it? Or would I rather, you know, teams are signing lots of good level American players, you know, who, who are in the prime of their career and players from around Europe and Australia that, you know, that are really good and in their, you know, at their peak, and it's creating a really good product that, that people want to show and, and people are getting excited by. I think that's a bit more sustainable and obviously more British players playing. We've had a lot more high-profile British players come back to the BBL because traditionally, you know, if you're a British player over a certain level, you might go and play in, you know, obviously you try and make the NBA maybe by going to college. And if you don't, they go and play in sort of other European leagues. Uh, France, for example, places like that. And we're seeing a lot of those British players come back now because... I think the standard of the game growing to a point where those players are going, actually, I could play a similar level to this at home in London, where I'm from, rather than playing in, you know, Eastern Europe or France or somewhere else. 
And again, you've got the benefit of it being an English-speaking place with similar culture to America and Australia, which is very attractive for players. So sometimes we get very high-level players who, you know, they factor that into their decision and actually maybe come to us rather than a different league uh, because it's an attractive lifestyle as well. So that's another advantage we've got, for, you know, for ourselves going forward. Okay, well, it seems like obviously it's real positive in terms of the work that's being done and the profile of the sport. I guess uh, something, and this is more of a personal opinion on your front, but what's the differences between the the, the playing style of of Europe basketball or European basketball to NBA basketball? Because as I said, as a San Antonio fan, one of the things that Greg Popovich always mentions is that um, the European players are better at their fundamental type stuff. Do you see a clear differences, a clear difference between the, the basketball that's played and, and what does that look like? I, I do definitely. As as you sort of said, it's creeping into the NBA a bit more because there's so many international players in the NBA now. Uh, you know, so, so it's cre- and similarly as there's more and more American players playing in the European leagues. So they're starting to converge a little bit, but. And when I think NBA and I think America, I think there's, you know, some of the best athletes I've ever seen. Uh, people like LeBron James and, you know, Janice and some of, you know, obviously Michael Jordan back in the day, players like that. They're just, it's freakish athleticism. And you see that a lot more commonly in the NBA. Um, obviously, you've got the whole of America as a talent pool. Um, and and I think that's there's a lot more uh, one-on-one play, a lot more really athletic, skillful um, play in the NBA, I'd say, and then in in Europe, it's you get a lot more the fundamental talent, you know, really good ball movement, um, you know, really attractive basketball, lots of passing, uh, you know, waiting for the right shot, you know, running lots of plays. Um, but I think as the big thing that's crept into the NBA now as well as in Europe, there's a lot of players who, no matter how tall they are, they play like guards, you know, they play. You know, they, they shoot threes, they, you know, they can dribble. It, I think in the past, in the NBA, if you were above a certain height uh, and build, you were considered, you know, a big man. And therefore, your job was to, you know, get under the basket and, you know, use your power to get to the basket and finish. Now, big men in the NBA are expected to, you know, be able to dribble, be able to shoot just like the smaller players. And I think that's a huge, um, you know, influence from all the European people coming in. People like you, you mentioned Paul Zingas, he's, you know, seven foot two, I think, or, or similar, and he can shoot three three pointers like like anyone can. And I think the American players have gone, well, hold on a minute, well, what are these European guys coming? I need to learn to do this. So it's rubbing off on how um, on how they play in America. Similarly, you know, European players and English players growing up watching people like Steph Curry and James Harden that will shoot three pointers from anywhere. That you know, if I if, if anyone had tried that when I was younger, they would have said like, why are you shooting from there? That's an awful shot. But they're seeing people do it in the NBA and the analytics support it. They're going to start doing that more. So you're going to get more European guys, you know, people like Luka Doncic, who's grown up in Europe, but he'll shoot from from miles away. That will be an influence on him watching American players. So it's starting to converge a little bit, but I think they're the main differences, I would say. That will help the the crossover for, for like European players or British-based players. Do you think it will help that the, the games are becoming a bit closer? Because I'd imagine... Um, and again, this I don't know the underlying things of this player, so I could be completely wrong. But you take someone like Ryan Richards, who was drafted by San Antonio, um, his skill set may be completely different to what an NBA centre looked like or what, at that time, what an NBA player 
could do with their skill set. Do you think by it being more collaborative across the globe, that will help players make those transitions across leagues and across continents? I think so, yeah, because, I mean, like anything, I mean, with with football, for example, you sort of think, you know, if you, if you grow up in England playing football and you're good enough, you can translate to most leagues. You might have to, you know, go into different tactics and a different system, but a lot of the skills, you know, are, are quite similar. Whereas if you look at football and you've got the sort of the argument about lower league football and, you know, people going in the air a lot, um, you know, going long ball sort of, you know, stereotypes and then trying to translate to maybe going in Spain, and where everyone plays it on the floor and, you know, tackling's, you know, not as preferential as, say, an interception, things like that. With basketball, I, th- I think it's not as, it's not as bad. It's, uh, it's, I think a lot of it, if you're growing up in England, you play, again, like I said, uh, you're going to be watching the NBA. So you're probably going to end up playing like an NBA player. So the next generation of uh, English basketball players are probably going to be shooting so many three-pointers from everywhere. Um it's because they're going to be copying what the NBA is doing. Where they might struggle a little bit is obviously similar to some American players is if they then, you know, aim for the NBA and end up settling at maybe European level is, again, is do they have the fundamental side of the game um, as much? Because, again, it's just drilled into players in Europe so much and they're so, so good with their fundamentals and their sort of skill set. But, yeah, I think, like you say, as, as the two become more similar... And, and hopefully, as people in England are watching not just NBA, but also European basketball and seeing European basketball players like Luka Doncic get to the NBA, that they're going to be copying the best bits from all of those players, you hope. And, and, and that's going to sort of negate the issues you'd have. I'm hoping that we see a few uh, Shaquille O'Neal types come back into the NBA. <laughs> that will ruffle a few feathers, in my opinion. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think that would be a bad thing. I think um, I think that you know everyone shooting from everywhere is is brilliant, um, and it's mean the scoring's going up and everything. But I think you do want that balance. You you, you know, you, I think a lot of people still want to see some you know big men as you call it, you know, going in and, and scoring close to the basket because it just varies what you're watching, doesn't it? Yeah, no, I agreed, and I, I also think. I'm sure you watched the Last Dance documentary, as a lot of us did. It was really interesting to see kind of the physical nature of, you know, the pounding you can get by going into the paint. It seems like a little bit at the moment that's coming away from the game because, as you said, a lot of three-pointers, a lot of um, pick and rolls to get three-pointers and stuff, where sometimes having that battle down low um, just brings a a different product and, and different... Yeah, the different view set. Well, how, how, you know, how does uh, James Harden deal with having to go into the paint where he might get a clobber? How does yeah. Giannis deal with having a seven foot one big man who's quite big trying to swat his shots away? You know, it, it makes the game more interesting for, um, for, for the viewers and presents different challenges for the players, which I think is great. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, when you watch sport, you want to see, you want to see varied, you know, within the sport, you want to see a variation of sort of tactics and styles, don't you? I mean, when you watch, when you watch football or you watch rugby, you know, Bristol, Bristol Bears are are really, you know, renowned for playing very sort of flair rugby, Um, you know, moving the ball, lots, lots of quick passes, really quick play. Whereas, you know, you know, other teams are, are more traditional and they want to use their power and use their weight to really, you know, sort of grind teams down. And I think in the NBA, you see that more in the in the playoffs. Once it gets to crunch time, teams that maybe have been doing something that's worked all season. So 
for example, the Houston Rockets not really having any any big players and, and playing small ball, as they call it. Uh, you know, sometimes when you get to the playoffs and the Lakers had a few seven-footers they could throw on, they, they didn't really have an answer for it. And and I think the, the playoffs in, in the NBA and the BBL is where those sort of tactics and having that versatility as, you know, as a lineup becomes really important. And I think that's what you see with good teams in any sport is just having that ability to mix it up and play differently. I think sometimes if you're if you're one-dimensional, um, you know, you can get found out if you're playing one team a lot because they can work little things out and it's nice for you to have, a, you know, a plan B to go to. Yeah, and um, no, I agree. And I think what's interesting in the NBA, also you have seven-game series, which, you know, Houston Rockets playing small ball, you might win a couple of games in that series, but are you going to be able to go and do that over seven and get all four, which um, mm. sounds interesting. I guess before I ask you my last question, um, yeah, before I let it run, because we're getting quite on time, who do you think will win next year? I think, um, I, I don't like to say it, but I think uh, I think the Clippers will win. I think LA Clippers. I think um, I think this year there's they've been a bit of a narrative that they thought they'd already won, so they weren't sort of taking it as seriously as they should have in the in you know the NBA bubble that they had. Um, but if they keep that, I mean, it looks like that team staying together. Um, I I just think they're going to have to come out this year with a real chip on their shoulder. Uh, answer all the critics. I think a lot of people thought they would win this year. Uh, I think they had the talent to win this year. I think they're the most talented team in the playoffs. So I think uh, I, my my first choice would be then, and then my more um, more out there choice is Golden State Warriors, just because this year they you know had so many of their players injured or, or not playing, um, and that they finished so low that they obviously got that quite high draft pick. Um, which they can obviously either get a talented young player or, or trade that for someone else as part of a package. With everyone back and, and rested from a year away, I think they're going to be they're going to be right up there this year. And, and then Lakers, I think again, have got a have got a good chance. I think they just maybe could try and do a move or two just to just to strengthen and get a little bit more depth. I think one of the interesting things about the Clippers is getting rid of Doc Rivers. I don't know if you've seen the playbook documentaries on uh, Netflix. Um, and he spoke about, he was speaking on there as a series of coaches talking about different different um, facets of coaching. And his was really interesting. But I was really surprised when they got rid of him. I, I didn't really understand the sense that it made in terms yeah. of um, he's a coach who's been there, done it all. And you seem like after one particularly unique year, you've kind of given him the chop. <laughs> Yeah, there seems to be a narrative with with Doc Rivers that he um, obviously he you know he won with the Boston Celtics, um, you know that really good team. But um, he's had a few talented teams um, with the Clippers, who a lot of people th you know thought maybe should have at least been in the finals um, or should have won. Um, you know, back in the Chris Paul Blake Blake um, Griffin days, um, and obviously this team now. And I think uh, you know. Maybe unfairly, but there seems to be a narrative created, which is, you know, you know, it, can he really get get you over that hump? And I think in sport, that just becomes a narrative, doesn't it? And then people seem to, you know, the blame has to fall with someone and it's not going to fall with Kawhi Leonard or Paul George, I don't think, because they've just been signed and they want them there together long term, sort of came in together. So I, I think, you know, they've, they've decided to put it on him and, and try something new with, with Ty Lue. But I think, I think with that group of players, I think they'll take it, 
more seriously this year. They won't be as complacent. I, I think they'll be up there. But um, but no, it's, it's a good point. He's he's a very well respected coach. He's you know picked up another job already. I think. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting next year. I think obviously not a lot of people thought Miami would get all the way through. I think there was a lot of talks of the Bucks and stuff um, getting through. I know the um, Philly as well, 76ers were up there. But I think I think it'll be interesting. You've got Brooklyn Nets with Kevin Durant and um, Kyrie Irving, obviously. That, that'll be an interesting dyma- dynamic there. As you said, Golden State Warriors coming back in. You've got the Mavs with... Um, Don Tip, Don Chich being another year older, um, and obviously a bit more chemistry with Porzingis will be interesting. So, I think providing the Golden State Warriors don't go on another rampage like they did for a few years under Steve Kerr, I think um, basketball health in the NBA is is really interesting. It's quite a wide open competition, which is which is nice to see. Yeah, that they would definitely be another wild card. Um, I've, I spoke about that with a few friends there. Um, They've got, especially having um, you know, the coaching staff having Steve Nash and Mike D'Antoni, you know, who who sort of revolutionised how teams play, really quick, really high scoring basketball. He had you know the invented the seven second offense pretty much in in Phoenix with Phoenix Suns back in the day, where basically he wanted the team to shoot shots within seven seconds, which is incredibly fast. Um, when you've got a twenty four second shot clock to to use effectively, having him on the coaching staff is just whether that whether that works with him being a head coach who's sort of there as an assistant coach when the head coach, Steve Nash, is quite inexperienced and used to play for for that coach. I just don't know how that's... There's uh, going to be a lot of a lot of characters and a lot of a lot of egos, a lot of stars in, in one place. If they can get it to work, then they're going to be right up there. But there's a few things that could go wrong, I think. Um, but yeah, they're going to be exciting to watch this year as well. Yeah, no, agreed. And I think all of those... Um... All of those people you've mentioned, minus maybe Steve Nash, has got a, a big question mark in terms of you know their thing like Dan Tony is can he can he win it all? Kevin Durant is always around. Did he just jump ship and join a rival to win championships? Can he win one by himself? Kyrie Irving's obviously his his attitude in, and whatnot in Boston and a few other bits. So. I think if they can all pull together as a us versus them type mentality, that they, they could be good. But you can equally see it uh, going down in flames as well. So I think that would be a really interesting one to see how the Brooklyn Nets go. Yeah, I agree. Cool. So last question, um, which I ask everyone, and it'd be obviously interesting to hear your thoughts on this. Who's the, the best um, player or coach you've worked with or against and why? Oh... See, that's more of an athlete question, isn't it? So I've got to, you have to think a bit harder. Um, you could go if you want to go seen live, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, I'll go see because unfortunately, whilst whilst I like to think I was uh, I was a good athlete in a few different sports, I think um, a lot of the people I played against um, all sort of worked with won't be well known. But I think um, I've I've seen LeBron James, you know, play a play a few times. Obviously, so basketball is my favourite sport and. I've watched him live when we had the you know 2012 Olympics. I was lucky enough to to watch Team USA, and I actually watched Team USA play GB in an exhibition match in Manchester, and I was sat really close for that. And um, since you know last year, watched watched him in LA as well. I think um, you know he for me is is probably you know everyone says you know Jordan's greatest. I I wasn't obviously I didn't watch Jordan play when he was in his prime. 
so for, for me, LeBron James is is you know the is, is one of the greatest athletes I've seen. I think I really like football, and there's a lot of footballers I think are amazing. Obviously, Ronaldo and and Messi, but I think with basketball only having five people on such a small court, you get such a, a huge showcase of what that player can do, and the spotlight's on them so much more than it might be in a fifteen person aside or eleven aside game. And uh, and I think as well. I think growing up in the area, in the era of this level of media scrutiny and just seeing how, you know, when he or, or other people I watch just get slated when they when they miss a game-winning shot or when they move team. I think watching his whole career and, and how hated he was when he went to Miami and then winning twice and, you know, how hated he was uh, in, in different, different series and different situations, I think he's answered every question. And I think the most impressive thing him for me is just the lack of scandal um you know he seems to have just done everything by the book and um, i mean he's created a, a university in his home in his home place of akron in ohio um and obviously really involved now with you know more than a vote and black lives matter and how much activism he's managed to sort of do off the off the court he's you know employed so many of his friends into into key roles well rather than just giving them money he's actually given them roles and careers I think it's so impressive, probably more than more than just basketball as well. That I, I would say he he would be my choice. I think. Perfect. That sounds like a good one to me. I think he um it'll definitely go down as, as one of the best to do it. And as you said, all the activism stuff that he does, um, particularly support of the the you know the younger people in in his area where he grew up. Um, I know he's done a lot of schools and universities and stuff, which is, which is amazing. So, um, yeah, and it sounds good. Well, listen, I really appreciate your time. And uh, obviously, I hope um, you guys can start your season soon <laughs> and everything kind of get all cleared up and stuff. But, um, yeah, it's been a great conversation. I hope you can catch up again soon. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.